Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Okay. Oh, welcome to the Building Science. To the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hey, hello, and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I have the great good pleasure of being here today with my friend and colleague of many years, Corey Squire. Corey is the founder and principal consultant at the Department of Sustainability, and he is, well, maybe not the Department of Sustainability. The firm name is Department of Sustainability, and he is also the Sustainability Director at Bora Architecture. Welcome, Corey. Uh, would you like to add anything? Any introductory remarks about who you are and where you come from? Thanks, Christoph. Uh, super excited to be here. The only additional piece is that I'm a registered architect. I've, I've been working in um, both inside and outside of architecture firms for the past decade or so. And my focus has been on all aspects of sustainable design. Excellent. And uh, on the um, personal side, I've known you for about 10 years since you were a kid and now you have a kid. No, I'm kidding about since you were a kid. And now you have a kid and uh, you've made it through the pandemic. And uh, you also have a book coming out. Tell us a little bit about your book, Corey. So new books coming out in this November. It's called People, Planet, Design. Um, um, Publishers, Island Press. And the premise of this book is to kind of really explore high-performance design from a system standpoint, from a process standpoint, and then from a kind of a, a philosophical foundational standpoint. Yeah. So what do buildings do? What should they do? How do we get them to do that? Um, both within the context of, of, of kind of working within traditional practice, and then how do we get them to do that within the context of the physical systems that we design? Yeah, I love it. So today, audience, we're Corey and I uh, have a long-term friendship of, of thinking deeply and uh, hopefully productively about uh, architecture and engineering and where they converge. And I actually wanted to start today with a quote from Carl Elefante. Uh, he was the 2018 AIA president and a really wonderful guy with a gifted speaker. He said, architects don't need to seek relevance, only seize it. And um, anyone here, like those of you listening, you're a kind of a self-selected group that understands that architecture has broad and lasting power in society. Um, there are few roles with, with quite as much impact. And sometimes it's not obvious to us that architecture both reflects and directs the story of a civilization, the story of our culture, right? U.S. culture today. And today, architecture finds itself at a crossroads. And that's, uh, that's the backdrop for today's discussion. So let's begin. So Corey, um, with your writing, you're telling the story of a, of a journey for the practice of architecture, kind of from where it's been, what it's been through, and, and where it is now, where it finds itself. So how would you define that story? How would you kind of get us started with where architecture has been recently? I think that architecture mirrors a lot of other aspects of human civilization um, where it was very much connected to natural cycles mm -hmm. for most of human existence. Yeah. People have been designing, building, occupying structures of some sort for tens of thousands of years. But in the last maybe hundred years or so, there were big changes, right? There were changes... Yeah. There were changes because of industrialization. There were changes because we've had just a huge increase in population over the past century, huge explosion of new technology. And I think that this led to some changes within the architectural profession that have some deep and profound consequences for everything from human happiness to social interactions to, um, to our relationship with the planet um, yeah. and, um, and, the, and the kind of climate crisis that we are existing within. Yeah, well said. In, in the book, you, well, 
I guess I should tell people that your book is not out yet, but I have had the great good fortune to be able to read it, some parts of it. And well, there's this idea of um, kind of the backstory is this schism between the goals and concerns of society and the goals and concerns of architecture. And as you just talked about, it's this kind of technological optimism and new technologies, you know, uh, concrete, steel, large expanses of glass. They weren't available and now they are available. So here we are at the beginning of the 21st century with somewhat the goals of architecture and society diverging. And you're saying that architects, this is why I started with that quote from Carl Elefante, that seizing relevance. So what do you think the key, some of the key aspects are for architects to become relevant today in society? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll touch on the quote. So the, the, the Carl yeah, Elefante quote was super kind of thought provoking for me when I was at the time I was volunteering with the AIA and we were working on what, what ended up becoming the framework for design excellence. And there was a lot of question around what is the role of architecture? And we knew that we had all these major issues to deal with, right? Climate change being one of them. But beyond that, there is um, kind of just question about how we live our lives, how we use resources, what, what, what we want our communities to be like. And there was almost there was almost the searching for like mm -hmm. um, architecture seems outside of all these realms, right? We we might award a very pretty building, but that building might not be very impactful. Uh, with the design awards, we um, we talk about things in the world of architecture, which might be esoteric to the general population, but because of architecture's scale, because of how ubiquitous it is in our society, um, small changes will have a big impact. So yeah, this this thought for me was like architects were <laughs> were seeking relevance, right? They were there were there were movements around sustainable building design. There's movements around equitable building design. But step, stepping back, it's all about just kind of changing the things, re-examining and changing some things that we're already doing. This idea of of we don't have to look that far for architecture that's really impactful and meaningful. Uh, we just have to seize it. And I think a lot of architects had been spending a lot of time seeking relevance. So my hope is that um, kind of the, that, that movement has changed, maybe the framework for design excellence, uh, maybe some, some kind of other changes within the profession, 2030 challenge for one, are kind of pushing um, the architecture profession to re-examine the decisions that we're making every day and how we can become relevant, how buildings can become relevant as part of the solutions to kind of major challenges that civilization is facing. Yes. Yeah, so it's interesting that the schism, another aspect of the schism, and I, I know this from talking to project teams for many years now, coming up on what, 15 years or something. Um, and this is a little candid, but often it's the, the younger designers or the younger project managers that are saying like, all oh, the stuff you're saying, you know, positive energy asking for certain mechanical space or ERVs or whatever, dehumidifiers, low embodied carbon enclosures, things like that. They're like, yeah, we really want to do all that. But somehow the, the leadership of the firm is not ready yet. So as soon as this leadership retires and we're ready to move up. So I feel like that's one of the things that Elefante had was that he was tuning in to the fact that many, many architects, you know, th those that I've talked to, they, they expressed that they were initially attracted to architecture with the goal of building a better world. But at some point, this connection, right, between their practice on the day-to-day -day and what their projects and how their projects had impact in the world blurred. And so what I love is that you are presenting a new vision of design excellence, right? That's how you're saying we, we seek, architects are going to seize, not seek, seize relevance by shifting mindsets first of the architects, and then the architects will do the work of shifting, you know, paradigms in their clients. Um, I would, I'd be interested to hear in your, your words, kind of this design excellence, like expand on the, those two words, design excellence, right? And it could take it lots of different directions. You could take it to Vegas, you could take it to the coat <laughs> principles, like, yeah. Well, let me, let me, let me step back a minute and talk about this concept of the schism that we're, we're mentioning. Oh yes. I'd love to, I can, I'm making a design excellence. So there, there's about the schism, Corey. So there's, there's this concept, which is pretty inherent to architecture that form follows function. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we, we often um, say that, that, I mean, we, we understand that architecture can't be form alone because it has to provide for kind of 
some sort of purpose for the people who inhabit it. Um, architecture has to keep people comfortable, keep them dry, keep them safe from the elements. Um, it has to serve whatever program. If it's an office, it has to be a functional office. If it's a kitchen, it has to <laughs> allow the occupants yeah. to effectively cook food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there was a long time where um, design um, is what, and, and design like formal ge- geometric design. Um, Would that be capital allowed. D design? Sure. I mean, it's it's just whatever whatever design um, design is how you achieved these goals. Um, so, if you wanted the space to be daylit, you had to provide windows that effectively daylit the space. If you wanted the space to be to be cool, you needed to provide a system for for making it cool. And if that was when air conditioning was available, then that might have been an air conditioning system. But before that, it might have been a passive ventilation system where you had right. narrow floor plates, you had windows that were aligned. You had strategies for minimizing heat gain. So what what the schism is is when technology kind of took the took over from design for providing function. Mm-hmm. So traditional architecture is about form and function, but if design no longer has to provide function because maybe electricity is there for the lights, or maybe air conditioning is there for the cooling. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we don't have to get together in a nice room because we can just talk over Zoom. Um, <laughs> then form is is can be freed from function. Mm-hmm. Uh, and initially, this might have seemed like a good thing. So there's there's like the international style. We have like the Lever House, for instance, where you have these these new glass buildings where all four facades look the same because because electricity is solving the issue because they solar, can right because they can now. Or you have like curvy geometric forms because we don't need because we don't need to shed water off of roofs anymore because right. that's what old buildings had to do. So the, the schism is this is the separation between form and function. These be very tightly connected, um, where one followed the other. Form followed function. The design of a building or the appearance of a building was inherent to what the building needed to do. But over the last hundred years or so, all this new technology kind of separated form from function, created the schism between the two. Um, and that what that led to was new forms, new shapes, new building types, new experiences that I would argue have been somewhat problematic. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it seems like it's great. We don't need to focus on window design anymore because we have electrical lights to take care of illuminance. But it's not going to be as good. The illuminance is going to be a little yeah. bit subpar compared to what have, could have been provided by the sun or... We don't have to worry about the glass on the Western facade uh, because we have heat pumps that are going to pump all that heat out of the building. So it doesn't matter how much it gets in. Mm-hmm. And and sure, that's all well and good, but there are costs to all of this. And some of those costs are energy or carbon emissions, but some of those costs are just experience, right? You, the all glass building is always going to be less comfortable. It's always going to be noisier. It's always going to be more carbon intensive to build. You'll, you might feel exposed um, without any solid wall. So... The sustainability movement, which really kind of bubbled up in architecture in the last few decades, has really been about rebridging, closing the schism, rebridging form and function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The securitist way to get into this idea of design excellence, I would, and I, I attempted to find design excellence by a manifestation of form and function, but in the mm-hmm. current context. Um, which means that it doesn't. It, the buildings today don't have to look like buildings 100 years ago before air conditioning was invented, or 200 years ago before electric lighting was invented. But the the quality of a design, um, the ability to achieve excellence, you need to have form that manifests a function, um, and the functions are broader than they used to be. Right, the function might have been providing an office where people can walk work effectively, um, or again a kitchen where people can cook effectively. But if an office provides great spaces for occupants, but at the cost of a warming planet or, right. severe, or severe inequality, like those aren't functional outcomes. Yeah. Um, function is, is, is the, that's, like, that's like the new thing of the 21st century. Function is no longer confined to the site. It's much broader than that because buildings have these far-reaching consequences. So what is design excellence today? I would say it's form that addresses global issues. And in a beautiful way, and in a comfortable way, and in an equitable way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to touch. I want to touch on something, and it's it's something we all live right now. Like we live immersed in, embedded in, and being part of a a system, a societal system that is actually leading society toward outcomes that we don't want, right? An unusable planet and things like that. But what I really wanted to address is you and I as as sustainability consultants or change agents in society in, in the architect in the AEC. It's almost like there's this implicit feeling that people are, that we are, it's like we saying that the people that did, did the international style, they were bad people doing bad things. And what I want to say is like, no, there was a reason at the time for technological optimism. And they, those ideas really were mainstream for them. Like we can do whatever we want. Maybe in their heart of hearts, it's like, it seems too good to be true that we don't have to shed water off of buildings that the engineers will figure it out or the enclosure consultants will figure it out. And it has been too good to be true, right? And I, and I get it. I love the idea that you're saying the schism between uh, architectural values and societal values, that design excellence is like a bridge over that schism. And I, I love the idea that you, you wrote in the um, pre-copy of the book that I was able to see of the Vitruvian trident, the principles of um, Fermitas, Utilitas, and Venustas. So let's uh, assign each of the three to the former function category. So utilitas, former function. So utilitas is function, right? right. And then how does the building, what, what, yeah, what services does it provide? Right. And then fermitas? Again, function. Does the building stand up? Does the building protect the occupants from the elements? Mm-hmm. And then venustas. And then this is probably form, right? This okay. is, so, so to think about it is like this connection of form and function, uh, uh, Louis Sullivan kind of coined the phrase form ever follows function back in the i don't know last few years of the 19th century but it's it, it that was that was the only way you can design a building before that all the way back to vitruvius and and before that yeah and so vitruvius was implicitly saying uh function function form <laughs> in some ways yeah so technology kind of took over our designs and this is this feeling of we can do what we want and um there'll be there'll be abundant energy and resources to make it work out and and there's real, I mean, there was real optimism around that. Like there is. Exactly. That's there, what I'm trying to say. Like these were real It was real a mainstream ideas. idea, right? Those were like, cultural norms. Yeah. Nuclear power showed up and there were ideas that it's going to be too cheap to meter, right? Right. Exactly. We, we discover fossil fuels and it's like this stuff is going to last us for the next million years. Maybe not million, but mm-hmm. at least, <laughs> but at least a lot longer than, um, than it's proving to be. Right. So. Exactly. And, the, and all the side outcomes and then. I mean, we can get into this later. So, or, so initially, um, this this schism between form and function was a very positive thing. It was like we we were freed. We can we our, our architects can become artists, right? We don't have to worry about all that concrete stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to. Buildings mm-hmm. don't need to keep people comfortable because we have electricity to do that. Buildings yeah. don't need to be near each other because we have cars to drive between them, and we have highways that are going to do that. So it all seemed very futuristic, very optimistic. Uh, it's just that we now know that none of that stuff turned out to be as good as we thought we thought it was going to be. Right. Yeah, yeah. You can't blame us for wanting to try. And yet now that we've known, and we've known for quite a while that, that it wasn't working out the way we thought. But yeah, like I actually just want to touch on it one last time, Corey. This, yeah. this idea that the use of fossil fuels and the, and the infrastructure we built as a society, it actually has benefited the standard of living for oh, yeah. some of us in the developed world, for the you know affluent one percenters for sure. It's really of benefit to society in a broad way. And now to continue to be of benefit to society in a broad way, the paradigms must shift. Yeah, like we're talking about um, mass timber construction. So mass timber construction is one kind of building strategy that that's detailed throughout the book, yeah. and, and there's a specific chapter dedicated to it. Um, and it, it's kind of similar to mass timber construction from 100, 200, 300 years ago when there were beams <laughs> that were mm-hmm. six feet thick and there were trees that we that were like 200 feet tall that we can use structurally. And we don't have those anymore. Um, so we have a new technology, mass timber. We take small pieces of wood, glue them together, and they, they basically have the strength of these solid pieces of wood back in the old days. So it's just one example where we're not going back to the way things were. We're using new technology to allow us to kind of reconnect the form and function in a way that they were before 
before really fossil fuels or, or, or kind of more modern technology um, allowed for this separation. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I want to go back to the very beginning. I don't think we uh, underscored enough, like the inherent relevance of architecture in the built environment. You know, what did you say just like a bit, little bit ago? It's like everywhere. It's like architecture. Oh, yeah, it's everywhere. It's all <laughs> it really, I mean, buildings, I mean, if you expand architecture to just cover the built environment, buildings, the way that our cities are laid out, the way that our transportation networks are laid out, all these things that we design. Um, that we live within, they're they're everywhere, and they p- impact really everything we do. Mm-hmm. And and um, of course they impact us because where do we spend most of our time? Well, in buildings, but also between buildings, right? And also like if mm-hmm. if, if we spend ninety, what is it, ninety five percent of our time in buildings, and then some amount of time in a car, and then some yeah, amount like, of time, it's like ninety percent, and there is like eighty nine percent, whatever, the- yeah, whatever the number is, uh, it's just a crazy amount of time. Um, and, in- and part immersed of is- in conditions of our own making. Yeah. And, but that's both indoors and outdoors, right? So indoors, it might be like, we're, we're immersed in a kind of physical indoor environment, but even when we're outdoors, we're doing what we're doing and we're, we're going where we're uh, going I see because what of saying. the way the cities might've been laid out, right? Mm-hmm. Because, so we're still engaged, in, immersed in architecture. Even right. Cause an office happens time. to be here and a house is here because of the zoning code or because this is how people typically trans, trans, um, mm-hmm. Uh, transfer themselves between right. these various Right, or they get glare off of the building, the glass right. building across the street. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought of that. So we're we're actually immersed in the impact of architecture far more than we're just indoors. And it's yeah, I mean, I would say whenever, unless we're in a very remote part of of the wilderness, like we are, we are fully immersed in them. Mm-hmm. Maybe not architecture per se, but like the designed built environment. So you could argue that humanity today largely lives in environments of its own making yeah we i mean we live in an anthill we we designed it and it's like we designed it with the best intentions in mind right and but some of those some some of those design (laughs) environments are better than others yeah right so it's ubiquitous it's everywhere and you know from a resource and energy use perspective the scale not just the psychological scale of the environment but the scale architecture is enormous it's everywhere it's we're, we're using so much energy and resources let me say it a different way. We are, on behalf of the planet, investing its resources and energy to create shelter for ourselves. And uh, you could imagine, like, I don't know, the planet saying, all right, you can have these trees, but please use them carefully. Or you can have this cement, right, you know, and the energy to make it, but please don't screw up your stucco detailing so that we have to strip it all off in a year and do it again. <laughs> So it's ubiquitous, its scale is enormous, and then its impact. Uh, one of the lines that really stuck with me from the book is, um, it's the pen that controls the backhoe. Yeah, I mean, we have to remember that everything, like, uh, out, out in nature, things kind of just happen according to some, some natural order of the universe. But within the built environment, everything that we see, everything that impacts our day-to-day lives was designed by someone. Right, with the location of the roads, the location of the buildings, the size and shape of the buildings, yeah, the indoor environments, yeah, that's that's that was all designed intentionally. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, and so what? In, yeah, the, the pen controls the backhoe, but let's the pen was controlled by what? You know, <laughs> by paradigms, right? By probably, yeah. And then the metaphor of backhoe, the pen controls. So much, right? The deforestation of the Amazon is influenced by that, right? Yeah, the yeah. There's a lot of power. Generation. There's a lot of power when when we're designing buildings, um, when we're drawing a detail, when we're drawing a, a plan, whatever else. There's there's huge implica- implications as to whether the line looks like this or the line looks like that. Yeah, yeah. And so this idea of design excellence, it's not static. I know we talked about Vitruvius and Louis Sullivan and things, but you know, excellent design, design excellence, it's not static, it's a reflection of the priorities in the given context at a given time. And today, oh my goodness, right? Like heat wave right now, huge, wildfires. Um, We had a pandemic, there's more to come, I guess you could call that a plague uh, without being too inaccurate. There's habitat loss, there's inequality in our society, injustice in our society. 
there's loneliness, right? There's, you know, there's so much that architecture actually can be harnessed as a force for good. So taking you back to design excellence, let's start, let's, let's touch on what happened in Vegas in 2018 at the AI National. How would you describe that? Yeah, so the, the Committee on the Environment at the time proposed a resolution to the board of the AIA to formally define design excellence. Um, and the way that it was, it was to be formally de defined was along 10 measures, um, which were previously the co-top 10 award um, metrics. Um, but, but basically, it's what a lot of people would call sustainability in architecture, sustainable design. So, mm -hmm. so looking at water, looking at energy, looking at equitable communities, looking at ecology, resilience, health, chemicals, all of these things that buildings should, should be responding to. These are, these are real issues, whether clients or users kind of specifically ask a building to be energy efficient or to not um, kind of include environmental toxins. Um, these, these are issues that architects should be addressing in all their projects. And mm -hmm. a project that looks great while kind of ignoring the issue next door can't be considered a great design anymore. But a project that looks great while also, let's say, decarbonizing um, or helping to decarbonize the grid through a great interactive building or purifies its water or kind of protects the occupants by avoiding hazardous chemicals, that's a great building, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to look great while doing good is kind of it's kind of how you could describe design excellence today. And it's not how design excellence always has been, right? I don't know, a Renaissance church in like, um, in Umbria didn't have to work on decarbonizing the grid to be beautiful, right? There, right. there were other it criteria. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a priority of the time. It wasn't a yeah. priority. It didn't matter. Um, but we also don't have the same considerations that that architect had uh, today. So, so it's, it is really important for architecture to be, for buildings to be attractive, right? Mm -hmm. and it's also really important for buildings to be impactful and to uh, kind of very- Well, they are impactful, to be positively To impactful. be positively impactful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to, to really, really address the issues that society is grappling with um, mm -hmm. is, is a role of architecture. So you brought this resolution, I mean, not Corey Squire, but the Code Committee. The big group, yeah, big group of people. Code AG, uh, what does that stand for? AG. Uh, the advisory advisory group. group. I mean, I, okay, so the code AG brought the resolution and to the conference, and you actually brought it for a floor vote. Is that right? Yeah. So, so basically, what 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 this resolution um, back in twenty nineteen said it said it said three things that the, that the AIA was going to kind of recognize climate change as being a major issue and and work on addressing it. The AIA is also going to use its network to kind of forward these goals around climate action. Um, and then what I think most importantly, the AI was gonna adopt the framework for design excellence as the new definition of what, what good design looks like or what it does. And, and this, this group, the Committee on the Environment who brought this resolution to the floor, we had no idea how it was gonna perform in a floor vote, which, which needs to be voted on by the entire membership of the organization, not every individual AIA member, but um, every chapter representing the various members. We needed 50% of the votes to pass. Uh, we had no idea what, what it was going to turn out. But in the end, 93% of, of, of the uh, members of the Institute voted in favor of this resolution. And that just shows how non-controversial and how mainstream this idea is. I don't think anybody recognized the fact that it was this mainstream or this non-controversial to say that great architecture... Um, has to consider all these things that previously we called sustainable design. Yeah. You know, and actually even before then, I mean, I just think that's so fantastic. And it's, it's you know, the cat's out of the bag now. And uh, I, yet I confess, you know, I was there with you and there were some hugs and some really happy high fives going around. And if someone had said four years later, how different would it be? I was a little over-optimistic. I was a little maybe naive in how quickly things would shift. I mean, things are shifting. They're absolutely shifting. You know, as, as we were talking about earlier, like I now, my team at Positive Energy, we have a lot of conversations with plumbers and HVAC installers. And like that's sort of the front line or one of the front, there's many front lines. But actually what I wanted to get to was it was something different. It was, um, 
the AIA 2030 commitment started in 2009, you know, a yeah, decade before a this 2019 yeah. resolution. So this stuff was out there. I mean, you could argue when Carter was saying wear a sweater and put solar panels on the White House, right? That's 50 years ago now. That's when it started. But, um, you know, I'm I think the movement is really the movement is really matured since then. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I love I love the Carter sweater address. But what was fundamentally problematic about it was this idea of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is not a good thing. Which is not a good thing, and it's not how you're going to build a movement. No, and it's, it's actually not true. Like it's not it's not true at all, right? It's not true at all. There's nothing wrong with wearing a sweater. In fact, sweaters are cozy, and you can be more comfortable with <laughs> with a sweater on. It was just perceived as sacrifice, or maybe it was opt- like maybe there were opt- opportunistic politicians who. Oh, and not just that, but there's the whole field of public relations that understands psychology and crowds and branded it that way. It was, it was by industry for profit, you know, PR that we were. And and that you can argue is like, I mean, there were solar panels around, right? There was, uh, but that was before the modern architecture sustainability movement. And then you zoom forward to something like 2030 commitment, 2009. That was actually also a floor vote on the, uh, for the, uh, at the AI convention. Um, which was the inspiration for the floor vote for the framework for design excellence. And that was huge because that introduced this idea of measurement. Yeah, there was this ambitious goal. We were going to measure and track and see how we were doing. And then if we weren't getting there, we were going to try harder was the idea. Yeah. I, I, by the way, just a minor little insert there. I love simple metrics. EUI is so, you know, it's energy use intensity. It's so simple. And I love that it's single digits is good. And there's another one that we use, which is, the total thermal flux of a building at peak load conditions divided by the total surface area. And that when a building is really well-made is also single digits. So it's kind of like golf scores or something. You want to go lower, lower (laughs) is better for this. But no, where I wanted to go was in 2018. So, you know, kind of leveraging on the 2030 commitment challenge before the sign excellence standards were changed. I learned this from you uh, in New Orleans, in fact, that in 2018, there were updates to the architectural code of professional ethics within the AIA. And, um, you know, before that, architects couldn't lie, cheat or steal, (laughs) but they had no formal moral responsibility for, you know, consequences of their design decisions beyond the page, right? The pen controlling the backhoe. And I have it here in front of me, the quote, among other topics, the new standards around environmental equity and justice state, quote, Members make reasonable efforts to advise their clients and employers of their obligations to the environment. Whoa. And including access to clean air, access to clean water, access to sunlight and energy for all sustainable production, extraction, transportation and consumption practices, a built environment that equitably supports human health and well-being and is resistant to climate change and restoring degraded or depleted natural resources. Whoa, what a recognition of the power of architecture. And that is in the Code of Professional Ethics. Yeah, that's in the Code of That actually came out of uh, Cote New England. Um, They developed that um, and they passed it for themselves and it was adopted by AI National. So huge, huge deal. And I think, um, I think so if we're talking about this schism, right, there is this kind of separation of form of function. There's optimism around cheap energy solving our problems so that we can design whatever we wanted. And that lasted, let's just say, 100 years. Um, and then near the end of the 20th century, people became more cognizant of some of the problems that we were facing because of this kind of reliance on cheap energy. And so, so what we're chronologizing now is kind of the beginning of the movement to kind of rectify this, this schism, bringing form and function back together. So this idea of yeah. buildings that, that address problems. So maybe 2030 brought this idea of measurement. Um, the code of ethics update was huge because it brought this, this idea of responsibility. What the framework for design excellence did was kind of finally brought these ideas back to the realm of design, which is super, super important. Um, because at the beginning of the sustainable design movement, there was often, let's just say another schism, not just between form and function, but between design and sustainability. Mm-hmm. There were the people who said, great design is this, is this formal exercise 
while sustainability might be this other thing. And maybe the outcomes are a little bit <laughs> we don't really want baked, to. right? Maybe, <laughs> maybe we have to sacrifice to achieve some more sustainable option. Mm-hmm. So what the framework for that excellence that is, I think, finally put the nail in that coffin, which is saying yeah. design and, and performance or sustainability are really one and the same. You can get an all-around better building <laughs> by designing an all-around better the building. Mm-hmm. And it, it's more interesting and it's deeper. And it, there's so many different directions to take this right now. But I just, I just want to touch on you and I. I can remember, you know, 10 years ago, you and I strategically saying we're going to call these high-performance buildings as opposed to sustainable buildings. And there was even the term the S word, right? Because like you could just see the door slam shut psychologically. Like, oh, I said the S word and that person is no longer listening, is no longer tracking with me. And um, even today, you know, like I think you and I, we try to be skillful in our roles in society. And what the deal is, is like you, you sense where that person is or where that firm culture is and you connect with it right there. And then you try to lead it forward. But if you just start from too far away with, you know, with like, you all are evil idiots, right? Of course, that's not motivation, right? You know, never going to get there. Right, exactly. So I think, I mean, you and I both, I mean, you still uh, practice in Texas, you and I practice in Texas together for a long time. Um, And I mean, Texas is perceived as a politically conservative state that might be less open to ideas of sustainability. Um. And that's kind of the problem with kind of using the quote unquote S word. And in my book, I hardly ever use the word sustainability. I think I mentioned in the preface that I'm going to attempt to not use the word sustainability because um, I don't think it accurately represents in people's minds this idea of better, um, which we're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. But in Texas, people are really into self-reliance, which is very important, yeah. really into simple, simple technology often, something that you can break and fix. Um, Mm -hmm. There's there's just so much overlap. And then I moved to Portland and um, people are not very much, people aren't so much more receptive to the word sustainability here. Like if, if we're, if doors were shutting in, 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 in Texas, when the word sustainability shows up because of maybe some political aversion, they're, they're shutting here in Portland because they're worried about financial implications. So, I mean, the best option is, and, and maybe we're getting a little to kind of language and how to talk about better buildings. Uh, but Which it's also the lens not of- not a trivial concept, my friend. No, it's not. It's also the lens well of quality, right? How can, you, how can you design a great thermal enclosure, um, which maybe you're investing more in, in insulation or air sealing, but you're improving thermal comfort, you're improving energy performance, and you're probably downsizing the system. So you probably even are decreasing upfront cost. Um, and if you said, we want to do the sustainable envelope, then all people with all different backgrounds might say no, right? But if but if you said, um, there the, there's a better way of designing a building, right? And we're going to invest in the envelope, um, the passive system rather than the active systems. Um, it's going to provide the series of benefits and it's going to be more resilient if the power goes out and it's going to be more comfortable. So you can sit next to the window when it's cold outside. And a lot of people are going for those options. It's, mm-hmm. uh... Yeah. Yeah. And, and instead, well, not instead, but I love that you bring that up because this concept of, of leading, but maintaining a connection, right? You know, that what you're speaking to is the connection is, ultimately a human connection. It's a trusted connection. Like, and so what happens is Corey Squire or Christoph or, you know, whatever, the, whoever the consultant is, they establish credibility, they establish a relationship, and then you hold your truth. You know what's true. You know what you believe to be true. And then you speak with certain tone of voice, certain body language. There's, there's a certain mystery to exactly what it is and how it is that you say something such that the other person finally hears it, right? And uh, just a super quick example, I know from giving talks on indoor air quality that I'll get people coming up right after the talk or emails the next day like, dang it, dude, I threw out my pillow and I got one with you know natural latex yesterday. Why'd you tell me all that stuff? I wouldn't, you know, but like- <laughs> I could have been like, blissfully ignorant otherwise. Exactly, I was blissfully ignorant yesterday. And what I heard is like, you heard me, you know, I got through somehow like telling people you live immersed in a massive air of your own making. They're like, oh, do I? Air is a material? What? (laughs) 
Yeah. So the purpose of design, like we talked about design excellence. So the purpose of design you write in your book is to wow, to serve, to improve or to reconsider. Um, and I think a lot of people think of design like I, I do. When I think of architectural design, I think of what I'm calling big D architectural design. So we were talking about design, right? This, and actually, you bring it up in the book, um, the concept of a traffic cone as having been designed. Um, you know, it does its job very well with its job being like, see me, <laughs> move, and uh, minimal materials, durable, reusable, right? So maybe if there's a good place to put plastic, it's a traffic cone. But fundamentally, when you're talking about the function of a building, the, to design, remember Vitruvius now is going to be redefined as function, function, form. And so we want to design a function into a building. And you talk about first order, second order, and third order function. And third order yeah. is really quite profound. Could you so well, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that, I think, more broadly, um, before we get into kind of various orders of function. Okay, please. It's worth, so there is, there's a school of thought where architecture and art are kind of, kind of almost one or this or this movement for architecture to become like a a, a high art um mm -hmm. like are, like are you referring art. to architectural pedagogy a little bit now or yeah i mean i mean maybe that is how it's it's maybe that's how it's um kind of presented in some schools right uh -huh. so so I, what i try to do is contrast art and architecture a little bit through this idea of form and function so if art is pure form right there's no physical implication to painting this or painting that. Now, obviously, it's mm -hmm. going to elicit emotions, right? If you if you paint a, a, a pastoral landscape, you're going to have a different experience than if you paint some hellscape. Um, and that's all great, right? Um, but it doesn't have the same real world impact. You don't you don't um, kind of fell trees and and um, smelt metal for the purpose of making that form. All those things that have these real impacts. Nor do you go live inside them. Mm -hmm. Nor do you live inside them, right? <laughs> you could just go home after after you experience any type of art. Um, so then, then, so it's clear that architecture and art are not kind of the same thing, right? They they experience form differently. One of them is one of them has real world function. One of them doesn't. So then, on the other side of the equation, you mentioned the traffic cone. It's like here's pure function. There's no real art put into this. Um, it's exactly what it is. It, it it does what it is. What it what it needs to do. Architecture has to exist somewhere between those two, right? Between pure form and pure function. It's really, again, this marriage of form and function. Um, mm -hmm. Outside, I mean, a bicycle, an example. A car, uh, maybe not a car, maybe an airplane, an example. An airplane is, it looks a certain way because that's the only way that it would be able to fly, right? It has, it has the aerodynamic smooth shape. It has the wings that form airfoils. A uh, bicycle is the same thing. Bicycle is a beautiful form. And... And it works, right? <laughs> and and often the the fancier and faster uh, bicycles start to look more and more interesting uh, because of how the aerodynamics or the position that you're sitting is refined. So architecture is very similar to that, right? It has to um, the form and the function need to become perfectly aligned for you to get a great outcome. If you're too forward toward the the art world. You're just going to have a fun shape, but it's not going to do its intended purpose or maybe causes harm. And if you're too far towards the utilitarian kind of traffic comb size, I think the example I give in the book is like a Soviet era housing block mm -hmm. where it provides what the people need on paper, but it's really a miserable experience. Um, so, so that leads into this idea of different orders of function. So... Um, Maybe previously we could think about function in a single point in time. So going back to this idea of an office, right? A functional office allows people to, whatever, do their work effectively. Um, but because the world is so much more interconnected than it used to be, function needs to extend beyond that single moment in time. So this is, this is what I might call second and third order function. So a first order function is... Does the building provide for its intended purpose? Does the office allow for workers to effectively carry their task? Mm -hmm. uh, second order function is like, how does that look over time? Mm -hmm. um, so one example is, let's say that you have mediocre air quality in this office. That might be fine on day one, right? Air quality, I mean, you might get a little drowsy, but air quality is more of a chronic 
exposure condition, right? After 10 years of working in this office with poor air quality, the the occupants not, might not be as healthy as they would have otherwise. So you can't say that's a very functional office, even though on the single point in time, it would have been it would have been fine. So that's second order function, where you take a time scale and put in and, and consider that. And then third order function, where you consider both time and space. Space meaning like the environment around you. Yeah, not only worried about what happened, like this, this single design decision, not only does it have to work for these people right here, but also work for these people on an ongoing basis, but also work for everyone else. So if you create the most amazing architectural space, but it results in some catastrophe on another side of the planet, mm -hmm. how can that be functional? Or polluting the river in your city or something. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. So those are the three orders of function. So I, I, I think that not only do I have to think of form and function as kind of the elements that result in great architecture, but function is more complicated than it used to be. So when Louis Sullivan talked about form and function, he was he was talking about first order function. He was talking about how well the building functions in this task in this moment. And Vitruvius probably talking about the same thing, firmitas utilitas for the occupants in that building at that moment. Um, but that's what because the that's broader ripples weren't as apparent. Well, and and they might not have existed, right? What the Romans right. did that's didn't impact the area. Western Hemisphere, right? <laughs> it didn't. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but today today is no longer the case, right? So we have to think more broadly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just touching on two quick things, and actually one of them takes a minute to unpack, but. The first one is health, right? You know, we, we've already talked about how much of the time, like basically most of our lives, the vast, vast majority of our lives, we're influenced by architecture. We spend approximately 90% of it indoors in architecture, in architecture. And this is like an example of a talking point for architects to talk to clients. If you think about health, you know, let's talk about your health. You're sitting there. You were born with certain predisposition for health. And then there's one other thing that impacts your health, which is environmental intakes and exposures. What were you exposed to? What did you take into your body? Um, so that's it. You know, they call the first one like your chromosomes and the second one, the second one now they're calling your exposome. So, so the logic that indoor environments are deeply impactful on your health is so simple, right? Like your dominant source of environmental intake and your dominant exposure is happening indoors. But here's the other one. So you mentioned nature, like, you know, how does nature work? And, um, you know, fundamentally, nature works by leveraging low energy density sources or low exergy sources like sunlight and wind and, you know, the stable earth and ground temperatures. But it's leveraging them over vast time scales. You pop this into my head when you said time and space. Vast time scales over vast spaces, right? Like, you know, go look at the lake in your town. It definitely holds, an, if it's, well, go look at the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. They hold enough thermal energy to power the world many times over, but you can't put an outlet into them, right? It's not, you can't plug your TV in there. Um, but nature has learned how to exist off of these low energy density sources, you know, recycling everything. It's elegant. But the point is this, here, here's getting back to form and function. There are still, it is still happening in 2023 where people say solar panels are ugly and communities don't want to see wind turbines, right? And it reminds me of Ghostbusters, choose the form of your destroyer. It's kind of like we have chosen the form of our, salva our salvation, which is solar and wind. And yet people are currently going, but that's ugly. You know, I prefer square or triangular tires to be the source of what works best for cars. That's the last one. Is no, I think that, I think that's a great, I think that's a great analogy. Yeah. So um, what do you think? How would you answer that? Like, help me when people say solar panels are ugly. It's so like, partly like, well, that's not the point. There's, it's a functional thing. It's not designed to be beautiful, but whatever. Well, first of all, I think that you can design solar panels to be beautiful hey, the same way you can design anything else to be beautiful. Tiles. And if you take some, if you just take some solar panels and haphazardly place them on the roof, like who wants that? That's yeah, the that's whole not Mr. Potato design. Head model of solar. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't want that. Um, I, I when I when I lived in San Antonio, I lived in a historic district, and the historic district didn't allow solar panels um, because they didn't exist when the buildings were built in the early 20th century. But the, the other way of thinking about that is not that there's this physical, like there's this physical technology that didn't exist in this moment of time, 
I think we can think more conceptually, which is how did people harness energy a hundred years ago, right? They harvest, they harness energy with the physical form of their houses. So before air conditioning in Texas, mm-hmm. um, there were, there were high ceilings, there were high windows, there were double hung, there was cross ventilation. Um, and that resulted in a certain architectural language, which responded directly to the climate. Um, so zoom forward a hundred years, solar panels are an extension of that. It's a conceptual, it's, it's the same conceptual um, kind of building response to providing for, for the climate. Mm-hmm. So the context of the time, the local climate, the, the broader climate beautifully as well. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, but I do think, I mean, you can make solar panels look ugly and you can make them look great. Like, yeah. so, uh, so we have so to design better solar panels. There's nobody who can't be won over by a beautiful, uh, solar, uh, solar array. Mm-hmm. I just want to stay on it one more second. I apologize, Corey. So if someone says solar is ugly, you, it's, it's a little esoteric to tell them, look, it's just a, it's, it's respond, it's designed responding to its context. It's appropriate. Well, I, I show them a picture of great looking solar solar panels. Mm-hmm. That's the best thing. Yeah. Or bifacial array and shading and solar. Yeah. And I guess that that's kind of the, that's the work for us and for every one it's, of you all listening. Is yeah. Like it's really easy that, to be like, okay, you don't like solar panels. No I just solar. won't use them. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's too easy. Okay. You get like, a generator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the harder work is to kind of reinvent forms that are responsible given the context that we're in and make them beautiful. And that's what design, like design isn't easy. That's what design excellence is. It's a, it's a, it's an ultimate goal. Um, it's you something know, it's, we're aspiring. It's so much a verb. Excuse me. Did you finish your thought? No, I said that's, that's what we're aspiring towards. So, yeah, I mean, you can, you can always design an easy an ugly building fairly easily. Right. But that's, that's not the point. No one becomes an architect so they can easily design ugly buildings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not within my, uh, it's not within my range of effectiveness to do this, but anyone out there that's has access to, you know, how architecture is taught. Right. And I know our mutual friend and colleague Z Smith has lots of great thoughts about architectural pedagogy, but like when we talk about design excellence, there's the first word design actually can be a verb and where the verb is at its most powerful moment, you could argue is when an architect is talking to their client, you know, where's the role power there? First of all, the architect's role in society is one of power. That's why the client is there, but the architect's being paid by the client. So there's this kind of pendulum of role of, of power dynamics going back and forth. And within that context, what needs to happen is the architect needs to hold a space of true conviction and, and tell the, client um i don't know how to say tell the client it's the right word but like how does the architect stop saying okay fine you don't like solar panels we're not going to put them on you're going to get a generator when in fact the client came to the architect for their expertise um and i guess i'm making a roundabout way of saying like architects need to maybe be taught that they have more power than they think they do um, yeah, you're and, nodding. And maybe, maybe that's the truth. Maybe that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I want to say, um, I'm asking you to, to talk about, um, you know, you, you do, uh, consulting with architects and I know you, you're a deep thinker, Corey. And I know that you don't just say, oh, you should, uh, we should be designing low embodied enclosures with excellent thermal capabilities and, uh, you know, grid interactive, high performing homes. And like, it doesn't just end there, right? That knowledge is really well populated. What's less populated is how does an architect motivate a client to make those decisions? How does an architect give the perspective that they have to the client in the way that the client says, you're right, I didn't realize that. That's a big question. I, I mean, it's it's the answer is through design, right? Mm. So the 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 client and the architect talk about what they want. So let's just use a single family residential project for an example. The client describe that they, they, they probably have a site. They bring a program. Um, the client and the architect talk to each other about 
the outcomes that they want to achieve, that the, that the client wants to achieve. Um, and then the architect takes all this information, designs a building, or at least a conceptual, a very, like a basic conceptual building early on, and then shares that back with the client. And the architect has a few options. The architect could say, here's the building I designed. Oh, and if you'd like that to be sustainable, or if you'd like it to be healthy, or if you'd like that to generate <laughs> energy, I can do this another additional thing and it'll cost you more money, right? Or what the architect can do is just integrate all those good ideas from the onset and then show them something beautiful. And then the, the kind of some of the points of, of discussion might just go away, right? We don't need to talk about a north facing roof if we need our solar panels to be on the south facing roof. Mm-hmm. And the project can end up with solar panels or not. It hardly even matters um, because they could always be added later. Um, but they can't be added later to a north facing roof. So right. it's, it's the, and the, the architect, I mean, the client never goes to the architect and says, and by the way, just make sure that the roof is north facing so that we can never put solar panels on in the future. The architect has a lot of leeway with transforming the client's program into, an, into that initial concept of a building. The architect also probably has some insights that the client doesn't even have about what they might want in their own house. So maybe the client doesn't have the language or the experience to describe indoor air quality at a very detailed level. Mm-hmm. And just because the client didn't say, I would like the particulate matter to be below X and I'd like the CO2 to remain below Y, it doesn't mean that the architect doesn't consider indoor air quality. The architect has the training and the experience to understand that indoor air quality is an important factor and to understand strategies to do something about yeah. it. And that should be in the first design, right? It's not like, oh, here's a house. And if you, oh, like you want to make it healthy, yeah, you, 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 you want to be healthy? You want... <laughs> I didn't realize you wanted to enjoy your house. I just designed you something. Your car needs an engine. Yeah. 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 Um, You know, this, this really like this gets into the whole, like an architect being able to articulate the benefits of good design to really articulate them. First of all, to themselves. I really believe that. Like it's this speaking from conviction. Oh yeah. No, I believe voice and body language is really powerful because we're mammals and other things. But I think that an, that the kind of the other edge of the sword is architects learning to anticipate the challenges of design excellence and learn to work with that. And part of that is just stubborn optimism or just, just working with it because, you know, you and I both know, I mean, and I'm, I'm a little more with positive energy now, like we are staying with projects through construction and occupancy and countless, countless conversations with mechanical installers about heat pumps and no, you don't need a boiler. No, you don't need a furnace. Right. But that's what they've always done. And here it is still today. They're like, no, there's no, like there's no like incentive or direct tangible benefit for that installer to pivot from something that they have done for decades to something new. And yet it is their role in society to be frankly, to be the means and methods of the, the design function, which is us, you know, the architects and the engineers. So it's, I don't have an easy answer. It gets hard as you get to to that phase of the construction. It, it, but it is, it it is the architect's hard. role. And a mm-hmm. lot of this, I mean, the reason it's hard because it represents a change, right? Mm-hmm. Represents a change of thinking, change of technology, change of experience. And things are changing a lot more quickly than they used to. And, 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 and a lot of uh, systems are just very deeply embedded. Yeah. So it... it <laughs> It'll come, right? Um, yeah, as time will. goes on, yeah, things, things, things do change, and they do change increasingly quickly. Yeah, I think you and I both feel it. I mean, not just feel it in our bones, but we observe it in our day-to-day interactions that, you know, it just popped into my head when you were talking, like, rain lands on a mountain, and over time it cuts valleys and rivers and, you know, streams and creeks. And that's where the water flows. And that's why we get boilers. And that's why we get gas furnaces. Those are the mainstream paths. But what's happening now is this inexorable ideological shift that says, okay, um, we have this one planet. It is finite and we are impacting it. And so that's like logs in those valleys. It said this path is actually no longer available to flow as easily. And so what has to happen 
in my opinion, is pressure has to build up. The jam occurs, the log jam occurs, the pressure builds up. And what does the pressure build up look like? It's harder for us to get sustainable buildings built, but uh, the pressure looks like disheartenment and increased budgets and confusion and things aren't as simple and transactional as they used to be where the, in, the the general contractor could just call his mechanical guy and go, okay, go. You know, that was the instruction, go. Do what you do, do what you've always done. So those things can't happen anymore and yet we don't have a, a well, we haven't carved the new river valley yet. We're carving it now. Right, but there was a time before the whole go where there was a different thing that was happening. Correct, so- yeah. Right. I mean, you, you might be you might be stuck in the current context, but you were initially confused by it because you were trained in the previous context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you brought that up actually implicitly when you said humanity has been designing places to, to shelter itself for tens of thousands of years. And yet, like what's traditional for me? Well, I entered the construction industry 30 years ago. So what was normal 30 years ago is what I call tradition. Well, what about someone that entered 30 years before that or 30 years before that? So it's this, it's this distortion that we get, this cognitive bias that we get saying those activities and principles that were applied and occurred during my lifetime. First of all, it was traditional. And second of all, as mammals, we, you know, we're adhering to tradition all the time. We don't want to eat the red berries, right? We want to. I think that, I mean, there was a long period of time without such technological change within design and construction. So you just learned what previous people did previously and you did that and somebody else learned from you and that happened for a very long time. And then technological change picks up to the pace that maybe it lasts for a career. So you do things differently than mm-hmm. whoever had the job before you and then the next generation of that career does it differently. But then we get into the the period where technological change might happen at the between projects multiple times yeah i mean yeah it could be multiple times a career it could be every project yeah. is something new that's a mm-hmm. very new context right and, and that, we're not wired for that as mammals yeah. like you know as social that's, beings yeah that's a real challenge it, yeah it really is and yet it is happening you're right i mean it, that's a great way to think about it um so does that make us more more i don't know comfortable with changes in the future or does it just make every i mean mm-hmm. it, it means that um, even if technology changes, principles have to remain the same, yeah. right? So you can be presented with a new piece of technology, but basically know these are the outcomes we want to achieve. And there are some areas where technology is actually becoming simpler. So going back to that, that like more thermally resistive enclosure idea, uh, maybe we can do a lot with the building enclosure and we can rely less on mechanical systems. And maybe mechanical systems get smaller over time. Absolutely. Right. And then, and then there's not, we don't need technology to solve this problem. We just need uh, <laughs> better walls. Yeah. I'm ready. I mean, I, I really would like to imbue the enclosure with a more uh, direct role of conditioning the occupants with thermally active surfaces. Right. Um, yeah. So, unfortunately, I'm looking at the clock. It's been a minute. It's really been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Corey. And uh, it's one of the reasons we're friends is these conversations are deep and broad and endless. And uh, in the context of this podcast, I wholeheartedly uh, invite you back for a second or third or however many. Oh, yeah, we can we can just keep going. Yeah, no, I totally I totally appreciate these conversations as well. I think they address important topics. They really do. Okay, so the theme of this podcast has been essentially form and function, or function, function, form, as Vitruvius would have said. And that is also how you open the book, right? That's also how you, you, you get into this story. And you end that chapter with this beautiful thought, in my opinion, is that as more projects um, align form and function, you know, what they're, what they're doing is they're defining a new architectural paradigm. And the conversation will shift from what a building looks like to what a building does and what a building can be. Um, and I'm curious, when you say the conversation will shift, like fundamentally, where will that conversation? What the shift? conversation is, I think the conversation of what, a, what, what is architecture, like what is the purpose? What are we trying to do when we design a building or what do we ask for when we hire someone to design a building for us 
Um, and I think Next that thing, we, what do we do as architects? Like, what do we do as architects or, or as clients or as people who live within, mm-hmm. within the built environment? Um, we ask a lot of what, what buildings look like and buildings should look great, right? There's, there's no reason they don't look great, but they should look great because of what they do. And that is where their meaning comes from. And I think when you're designing, it's like, it's, it's pretty easy to design something pretty cool, but it's really hard to design something that is impactful while also looking really cool. And I think that as architects, like we know when we've, when we've done that. So I think maybe we just, the conversations, we can scale down the, what does it look like and scale up the, what does it do um, when we're thinking about a building and then going beyond that, like we have some, some real problems in this world that we talked, discussed earlier, like what's the, what is a building going to do about that? What can a building do about that? I think these questions are um, hopefully where the architecture profession um, can be headed. I love it. That's that's my just deepest aspiration. Thank you so much, Corey. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, Christoph. And thank you all for listening.